Say It Skillfully is about being who you really are and saying what you think needs to be said, even at work. Whether you're part of a small project team or leading a giant company, the more you accept that you're part of the problem, the faster you can be part of the solution. Join Molly Chang today as together we break the silence and learn how to be happier, healthier, and more productive at work and in life. Hello, Molly here. Welcome to Say It Skillfully, helping you find the words to create shared reality in a way that's true to yourself. You've heard not to judge a book by its cover, yet unconsciously, it can be easy to do so with people around us. We think we have a sense of someone and it never ceases to amaze me when I learn of the depth of who someone is, their interests, and what really moves them in life. This is the case with my remarkable guest today. You might say his day job is managing director at a global investment bank. We'll hear how he chose this career path and what's not so apparent, his multitude of, shall we say, night jobs. He is the executive chairman of the David Lynch Foundation and featured in the 2016 best-selling book, Supermind, all about transcendental meditation. As an actor, yes, Hollywood actor, he's played opposite Robert De Niro three times and performed in films directed by Barry Levinson, Taylor Hackford, and the Ferrelli Brothers. He was featured in several successful TV series, including Boardwalk Empire and Blue Bloods. And he's ventured into producing as managing partner of Mad Riot Entertainment, working on films including The Yellow Birds, The Comedian, and Burn Your Maps. Meet my many-faceted friend, banker, philanthropist, performer, and executive producer, Mark Excelowitz. Mark, welcome to Say It Skillfully. Well, thank you, Molly, for uh, having me on your show today. I really appreciate it. It's an honor. Well, I appreciate you. I know that this took a little coaxing of you, so I'm very grateful for your willingness to go there and be generous with who you are. And I am very impressed, my friend, by the drive that you have shown to pursue your interests and create a very fulfilling career and life portfolio. I honestly don't know anyone else in financial advising, meditation, and Hollywood. And I'm not really sure early in your career, Mark, if you'd imagine where you are now. So please take listeners through your amazing journey. Okay, my pleasure. And yes, it did take a little coaxing for your audience. It took over a year. I said no many, many times, but you were very, very persistent. And I decided uh, to go for it. Um, so, no, I, I, you know, there's an expression my wife's grandmother says, you plan and God laughs. So I really didn't plan any of this that has happened to me in my life. I sort of feel like I'm the Forrest Gump of, of my world. I, I really have gotten very, very lucky. And mostly with all the, pe- the great people I've met in my life. Um, but yeah, my life started out, you know, very, very simple. Modest. I grew up in a modest family. My father probably never made more than $40,000 a year. Uh, I'm one of four. Uh, my mom uh, raised the children, so she didn't have an income, though she worked harder than anyone, of course. And um, what probably shaped me early on was in 1969, when I was nine years old, uh, my father actually lost all his money in the stock market. Uh, at the time, he did not have a good advisor. Um, he was aggressive, so he has to take some blame for himself. He had marginal leverage. And he lost all his money. Um, and it was tough for my family. 
So at an early age, starting, you know, nine, 10 years old, all my siblings, we all had to start to work to make some money, whether, you know, I delivered newspapers, I caddied, but the job I did the most really to pay for my college and cars uh, was landscaping. I did that for almost 10 years of my life. And at the time it was, it was significant cash that was well needed in for myself and my family. Um, my father, uh, who actually, my mom, my uh, who, my father lived to a very old age. I was very fortunate to have both my parents up until last year. My father lived to 101, and my mom lived to 95, and they both passed away last year, a few months apart. My mom died first. My dad passed away a few months later of a broken heart, but their marriage was pure love, pure definition of love. They were married for 65 years. They both got married a little late in life back, but back then. Um, but they literally slept in a full-size bed every night together, the entire marriage. Um, so what my father says about him losing all his money, it was the best thing that ever happened to him because he had four children that weren't spoiled. Um, but that day, I was very fortunate that he lost all his money because I started working at a young age and worked very hard my whole life. I still do work very hard. Um, but I knew one thing at a young age. I wanted to make money. I did not want to grow up without money because, you know, it was a little embarrassing, probably not probably. It was embarrassing growing up in a neighborhood where, you know, we probably had the worst house on the block. We had the worst used car on the block. We li- I grew up in a home with almost no furniture. So that was embarrassing. You know, we had a kitchen, of course, kitchen furniture, a den. But, you know, our living room and dining room were bare. So, you know, I, I definitely wanted to have some um, some success because I wanted some money. And fast forward, um, I didn't go away to college. I definitely did not have a good, in my opinion, I did not have a great education. I, I, went, to, I went through public schools in Bethpage, Long Island. Uh, I, went, I stayed at home. I didn't go away to college. I went to Hofstra University, uh, which is a decent university, but um, not, as, not as great as schools as, as all three of my children went to. Um, but I had no choice. I, I literally worked three jobs to pay for college. I cut lawns. I worked for UPS. I packed trucks and I worked in the Hofstra computer center. And all I knew is I wanted to get a great job and make some money out of college. And I did get lucky with a job. You know, I I graduated in 1982, um, Hofstra and computers were first coming. You know, that was like the new thing. And I had a, a minor in computers. I knew nothing about computers. It was really difficult me, for me to take computer coding, um, but I did it anyway because I thought it would land me a job. And it did land me a job working for a company called Northern Telecom, which was Bell of Canada. And I worked in customer service. I started out, but my eyes was on sales. And within two years of uh, working customer service, they promoted me to the sales division. And I was selling multi-million dollar phone systems on Wall Street. And within, uh, by 1986, I was making over $100,000 a year, which was a lot back then, which is still a decent income today. It's a good income today. And, but I saw that the most I would ever make at that firm, if I was the best one in the country, would be $150,000 a year. And I just wanted to make more. And I, I saw all these young guys on Wall Street in in 1985, 86, making a lot more than 110,000 a year. 
And I said, I want that. I want to do that. And I knew no one on Wall Street. And I just knocked on doors to like Merrill Lynch, Smith Barney. And the gentleman that hired me, Keith Shepard, I'll give him a shout out. He's a great guy. He hired me. He actually taught, he said, he, didn't, he goes, he thought I was crazy. He goes, I'll hire you. He goes, we're only going to pay you $25,000 a year. Uh, and you only get salary for two years. He goes, I don't think you should do it. But if you want it, go for it. And that's how I got onto Wall Street. And I started in March of 87. The stock market crashed in October of 87. And I thought, by the way, Molly, I can't hear you if you're speaking. No, I'm just, I am kind of oh. reading, like I can't even oh. believe you because oh. before you go into this, so 110 to 25,000, okay. And Keith is like, you're insane. Talk to me. Were you like, no, 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 I'm sure I can do it. I mean, if you look back, were you just naive? You were like, I'm going to make it. That's, that is a significant cut in pay. You know, everyone thought I was nuts. My girlfriend at the time was my wife today, um, married 34 years. She thought I was crazy, but, you know, she just met me. Um, I felt like I wasn't taking any risk. Because I had, I wasn't married. I had no kids. I had very little expenses. I came from nothing. I was happy with uh, eating from a can of sardines. I didn't care. I could sleep on the floor. I didn't need anything. So, to me, I, I didn't. I didn't think I was taking a lot of risk. Um, when the market crashed, I thought I, I made the biggest mistake of my life, and it was really, it was really bad. I, I cried for days. Um, but the good news was. So around me was all these senior advisors and they, they, you know, they had these big practices and they were crushed. I had very few clients and I, you know, back then, I mean, it really was like the wolf of wall street, except we were legitimate. Um, we sold real stocks, you know, blue chip companies, but we were cold calling. That's what you did. And I just got on the phone and I just cold call, cold call, cold call. And everything I bought went up because I bought it after the crash. And that really helped me launch my career on Wall Street. It ended up being a good thing. The other thing I found that early in my career, because I didn't know what to do with the few clients I did have, their, you know, their stocks were down a lot. And I realized, and all these senior people, I was asking their opinion, what do I do? No one knew anything. It really surprised me. So early in my career, I learned to diversify, own quality. So this way, if the market goes down, my clients wouldn't lose as much as I just lost my clients be by be fully concentrated in, in equities. But um, that's how, again, I just, out of nowhere, I just decided to go on wall street out of nowhere. You know, no, no one on wall street knew nothing about it. The one question, because they, that can be a very, very harsh environment. And I could imagine really needing a really a great sense of self or a ton of naivete. Cause you know, I think most people would be like, yeah, 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 whatever. Who is this whippersnapper? How did you, you know, your own self-confidence, your belief, talk about where that's grounded. Well, that's definitely uh, grounded in uh, my parents and probably, you know, and, and more so my mom than my father, but you know, both of them, but you know, it was unconditional love. They thought I can do anything they believed in me. They thought everything I did was great, even when, of course, it wasn't great. Um, so I think it comes from, you know, I was lucky, you know, I, you know, I came from a loving home, you know, so 
maybe I wasn't rich financially, but I was rich with love, emotions, and I was lucky to have a good family unit, you know? That's priceless. Yeah, I always say kids don't get to pick their parents, Mark. Yep. So I was lucky. Okay, so now you're you're early on in this diversification, which of course people are listening going, what, that was a thing? And so obviously you are early on. Mentors along the way, uh, I'm imagining folks. Yeah, I, I definitely had, I, yeah, I, I latched on to some very successful advisors and they taught me the ropes. Um, and I'm a big fan. My hero on Wall Street, like many, is Warren Buffett. I mean, he's a genius. Uh, and I, in fact, this summer, one of my summer reads is I'm rereading. So I, I listen to the, I highly recommend people uh, listen to Warren Buffett's annual shareholder meeting. And um, I've gone to it once or twice, but I listen every year now for the last six or seven years, they live stream it live. That used to be on, live on Yahoo Finance. And now it's on CNBC. And by the way, you can go back and see every one of, you know, everyone that they've recorded. And, you know, you know, he takes a practical approach to investing. Um, he was asked a question by a young girl this year. He, you know, if you go to the event and there's like 40 or 50,000 people that attend, he allows questions, Q&A. And this very young girl, I don't know, maybe she was 12 or 13, asked a question for his advice. And he recommended he was the best book ever written on investing was by Warren Buffett's mentor, teacher, professor from Columbia is Ben Graham. And the book that Ben Graham wrote in 1949 is called The Intelligent Investor. Now, I, I read it early on in my career. Um, I, I really don't remember much of it. Um, so I'm rereading it. But I tell you, it means a lot more for me to read it 37 years later and doing this business for 37 years it's 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 nothing's changed like one of the other great books i've read on wall street it's called reminiscence of a stock operator it was written in 1929 and nothing's changed really because human emotion does not change fear and greed does not change so you know i take a practical approach to investing the fear and greed though when you're going through this, um, was it easy for you to hold your own? You can see how, you know, you hear about things where people do egregious things, Mark, you know, you're like, what were you thinking? Like, so how, what, did you need help? Would you, did your wife keep you grounded? I'm just curious how you stayed true. Well, I definitely say stay true by making mistakes. I mean, my clients today and my clients even 10 and 15 years ago, well, lucky that, you know, I've been doing this for 37 years because I definitely made a mistake and I learned my lesson from that. Um, and it was interesting when the pandemic broke out. I mean, I've been through a lot, if you think about it, in my career. I mean, the 87 crash. Then you had the uh, Kuwait invaded Iraq in 1990. I've had, there was two wars, I'm trying to remember the other war. Then you had long-term capital blow up in, I think it was 19... 98, you had the tech bubble. Then you have a terrorist attack. We've never seen that ever. 9-11, right? 2001, the tech bubble. And then subprime was a disaster, right? 2008. And then you had uh, the Russian ruble crisis, but then you had, uh, then here comes the pandemic, right? 
So the pandemic was something that we've never seen before. And um, there was a pandemic we knew 100 years before that. I wasn't around for that in the business. You know, that was, what, 1918. Um, So my partner, I, I met him in 1980 cutting lawns. So we've known each other for 43 years, and we've been working together as partners on Wall Street uh, since 1989. Um, and we, you know, the pandemic's happening, the market's going down, clients' accounts are going down, and we're just thinking, what do we do? And believe me, we thought, and we thought, and we listened to all, and we were fortunate, we have a lot of really very, very successful friends on Wall Street, and we have very, very smart clients that are smarter than us. At the end of the day, and our decision was, if there's one thing that we, have, that we have learned in all these years on Wall Street, the one thing we've learned is not to panic and not to sell. The market went down. Almost, it went, the S&P went down in, 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 uh, as much as almost 40% in March of 2020. But if clients wanted to buy, we absolutely, we thought, you know, if they're long-term, what a great buying opportunity. So... I, so now I'm, I've, I was, oh, most people don't, when they meet me, they don't think I work on Wall Street because, you know, I'm pretty, I'm definitely pretty chill. And, um, and so, and in my acting world, I never tell them I work on Wall Street in my acting classes. And when they find out, they can't believe it, actually. Okay. Before we get to get to the acting, I have um, the, the financial side of the house, I guess when you're in it, you're dealing with so many emotions of people and the nature of people. And so just talk to folks about what you've learned about influencing people, listening to people. Cause I mean, that's what it is. I mean, you know, you're working with clients, they have to trust you talk about engendering trust that, you know, I just be curious on, on your advice on that. Front. Yeah. So first of all, I mean, you have to be a shrink because money is very emotional. It really is. Um, so A, we listen to our clients. We find out what's important to them. B, I mean, we are, I mean, we are as honest as you can be. I mean, we are always honest. We're very transparent. But we listen. And I think by, you know, when clients come up and they're, you know, if they're nervous and this and that, we hold their hand and we educate them really because people just aren't educated. And we educate them about the markets and the long term and how that is important. I mean, so when people think the market, oh, it's not going to go up again, the world's going to come to an end, or it's in a pullback, it's never going to go up again. I like to tell this story. I taught an investment class to seventh to 10th graders up in East Harlem at the East Harlem Exodus House in 1990, for a few years in the mid 90s. I did that through my affiliation with the Robin Hood Foundation. I wanted to, besides give out, give out, give, give money where I wanted to really get my hands dirty. So I taught this investment class at this great school up in East Holm that actually JFK, uh, who was on the board of Robin Hood, who was very fond of them. When JFK passed away, I wanted to do some, something. I wanted to get involved with an organization that would miss his presence. Obviously I couldn't fill his, I couldn't fill, you know, half a shoe of JFK, but at least, I give his organization, you know, uh, some attention. So I would tell the kids, you know, they, 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 you know, these kids lived up in Hall. They knew nothing about Wall Street. 
So I had to learn, you know, I wasn't a teacher. I had to learn how to tell tell stories about money. And one story that I tell to all clients um, is uh, this. In, 18, in August, I think it's August 8, August 13th, but in August of 1896, Charles Dow and Ed Jones came up with the Dow Jones average, right? And that, and that became the Wall Street Journal. Dow Jones owned the Wall Street Journal. And the, the Dow average at that, that day started at 44. When I was born in 1960, the day I was born, the Dow was 602. When I got onto Wall Street in 87, it was 2,200. And today it's over 35,000. Now, if you draw, draw a graph, right, it's not straight up. It's obviously it's up tremendously, but with a lot of declines in between. I mean, world, two world wars in that period of time, you know, Vietnam War, Korean War, all the problems I just mentioned earlier. But all the, all the market is showing you when it goes up, what it's showing you is the improvements in civilization. People living longer, the improvements in medicine, the improvements in technology. What next with AI? It's and that's what uh, that's what keeps us grounded. That's what you know. We I know the facts. I know the numbers. I've seen it. It works. I love it. I love it. I love it. Okay, I'm dying. I've been dying to hear all these different facets of you. There's the meditation piece. There's the acting. Take us which way you'd like to go first. Okay, just the last thing I want to say is like, you know, I didn't really want to do this show because I really don't want to talk about myself and I don't want to sound like I'm bragging. And that that made me hesitant about doing this. So, you know, they, I have a great support system. I have a great family, wife, and three kids that support me. I have a lot of great friends. So well, the question was acting. Let's talk about the acting. Like, was that, have you always been as a kid? Did you want to be an actor? I mean, where did this come from? So I never wanted to be an actor. I never was in a school play. I never, I, I wasn't, didn't do theater. I didn't, I had no interest and definitely had no talent in my opinion. Okay. So just never thought about it. Can't sing. I can't dance. I could barely speak. So it, it all happened by accident, literally. So in 2004, I was on the board for 20 years of another non-for-profit up in East Hall. Uh, called the Boys and Girls Harbor. That was founded by my mentor in life. I, this guy became my mentor. Anthony Drexel Biddle Duke found the Boys and Girls Harbor. He re, he's a real Drexel Biddle Duke. His great-grandfather founded Duke University. Tony founded the Boys and Girls Harbor in 1937 when he was 19. So he came from a family of privilege, and he started a camp in East Hampton for the for inner-city kids. So, and Tony was a World War II hero. He was written up in Stephen Ambrose's book, D-Day. And Tony became my mentor in life. Tony passed away about seven years ago. To, he would be, actually his birthday would be in two days. He'd be, I think, 106 now. Um, I was one of the very few people that was privileged to do the eulogy at his, as, at his um, funeral. So I was, I was, that's how close I was to him. But Tony was brilliant. I loved him. But so we had to raise money every year and we had we had benefits every year at the Waldorf Astoria, black tie, real stuffy, boring. But we needed the money and we did it. And Dick Wolf, the creator of Law and Order, donated 
a speaking part on Law and Order, not a walk-on, an actual role. So I was the high bidder, so I won it. And I get on the set of Law and Order in, in 2004. Um, we film, they film it at Chelsea Piers. And I, because I'm what they call a principal, because I have a speaking part, I got to spe- be on set for two days in a row with the principals, Sam Waterson, Elizabeth Roan, Jesse Martin. And I got to watch them and then and, and do my lines. And so it was time for me to do, I only had 19 words. I was the jury four person. So I read the verdict. And when it came time for my scene, I choked. I couldn't spit it out that well. And it was obvious. And we do it again. I choke again. Now I'm sweating bullets because in the jury box are real actors. And because they're day actors, they don't have lines. They're probably, they're making about a hundred thousand a day. If you have a speaking part, you know, I was making like 1500 to 2000 a day. And I'm, and you know, they're thinking, how do they even let this guy act? He can't even speak. He's choking. I do it a third time. I choke again. The only one on set that knows I'm not an actor is the director. He had to know that, right? He knew that. So he comes up to me. His name was Ed, actually Ed Sheridan. He was actually the head of the director's guild at the time. And I go, Ed, I am so sorry. I go, I speak publicly all the time. I'm nervous. And he, he looks at me, he calms me down. He was smart. He goes, Mark, in real life, a jury for a person might be someone that doesn't speak publicly. So it's okay. Anyway, a long story short, I finally did the take. I finally did it. Everyone on set starts applauding because everyone was embarrassed for me. I got through it. And I really liked it, actually, even though I was totally embarrassed. And the assistant director came up to me, a woman, Allison Thompson. And she goes, you know, you are actually good. She goes, you can get into the Screen Actors Guild. I'll get you your card. And you can get into it because we paid you. You had a contract. We paid you. They broke the law, actually, at the time to put me on. They don't do this anymore. And she goes, you should do this because you're 44. You're not a kid. You have life experience. And you don't need the income. So I said, all right, I'm going to give it a shot. And not, I cannot imagine just inside sweating bullets, screwing up in front of this thing, like literally wanting to like just disappear into the floor. I was, and by the way, many times when I've done scenes, I have been, it's been very, very challenging. Um, So what happened, by the way, Allison Thompson, she, um, we, we headed off on set for two days because she was a philanthropist. She is a philanthropist. She spent nine months on the site of 9-11, you know, in 2001. This was 2004. And she gave up Hollywood. She has a non and we're still very good friends to this day. She has a non-for-profit called Third Wave Volunteers. She should be on this show. She has 50,000 volunteers around the world. She goes to every disaster site around the world. I and some of my very wealthy friends uh sent her to the ukraine nine times last year wow. ray dalio helped me bill ackman helped me do that and some other people um she's she she's been called the mother t- teresa of today she's a real saint 
So, um, so I've been helping her out, but she's the one that told me to pursue it. And guess what? I didn't pursue it. I didn't pursue it. And then what happened in 2007 or eight, seven, 2007, I'm on another non for uh, just helping out another non for profit on the host committee on this non for profit called Children for Children. And one of the silent auctions was to meet Ellen Chenoweth. Ellen is one of the top casting directors in Hollywood. And, but it said, you're not going to get a part. They didn't want to mislead anyone. But I bid on it. I, I got that. And I met with Ellen. And after meeting with her, she goes, you know what? I like you and I'm going to let you audition for a movie. She goes, I'm doing a Coen Brothers movie, A Serious Man. There's a great scene. You can play an attorney or you can audition to play an attorney opposite John Goodman. I go, fantastic. She gives me the sides. That's the script. She goes, come back in two weeks and you can audition. I come back. I, I don't have an acting coach, nothing. I come back. I audition. She goes, I can't give you this part. You can't act. I go, I know. I've never had an acting lesson in my life. She goes, well, do you want to act? I go, I, I really do. She goes, if you really want to, I can probably get you into Strasburg Acting School. She goes, I know Anna Strasburg. That's Lee Strasburg's wife. You know Lee Strasberg was the acting coach from everyone from De Niro to Melon Monroe to Pacino, major act. He was my acting coach, Gary Swanson. I finally have acting coaches, Lola Cohen, Gary Swanson. They both uh, taught on the Lee Strasberg. So I start going to acting class and I, I love it. You know, I'm going from 10, from six to 10 o'clock at night, once a week. I'm the oldest guy in the, in the room. You know, it's all these kids in their late teens, early twenties. And then I got some little gigs. And then my big break came in 2016 or 17. Ellen calls me up and she goes, I got a great role for you that you can audition for. It's a Barry Levinson film. And you play opposite Robert De Niro. And the best part is you're playing yourself. You're playing a financial advisor. You're playing this guy, Robert Jaffe. And the movie's about Bernie Madoff. Robert De Niro plays Bernie Madoff. Michelle Pfeiffer plays Ruth Madoff. It's called Wizard of Lies. It's on HBO on demand to this day. It's the second most watched film ever on HBO. And she goes, you know, she goes, you have to come in and audition. I come in, I audition. She goes, hey, great job. I go, do I have it? She goes, no, no, no. Barry Levinson has to approve every speaking part. So, but the next day, Barry saw it and I got the part. And so really my first real role, feature role, is playing opposite Robert De Niro. Okay. Okay. So now talk about nerves. Well, I was freaking out. <laughs> I mean, my heart was going, I was sweating, my heart was beating. Um, now the only good thing was that now fast forward, like I have an act, I had two acting coaches. I worked very hard with this, for this role with my acting coach, Gary Swanson. And I mean, we worked really hard. Also by that time, I was also meditating for over four years. I started transcendental meditation, which we can talk about, um, in 2012. 
So I was meditating, doing relaxation exercises, and I was, you know, I felt prepared, but you're really never prepared. I mean, I get on set. I didn't know what to expect. I thought I was going to meet Mr. De Niro, but really everyone, you call him Bob. I thought I was going to meet Bob and get to know him, and I thought we were going to do a rehearsal. Nothing. I get on set. I meet Barry in person for the first time. And, you know, he's a legend. Barry Levinson, three Academy Awards. He did Diner, Tin Man. He did Rain Man, Good Morning Vietnam, Bugsy, Wag the Dog. He was just up for an Emmy last year. He did, he did Dope Sick. I mean, Barry's major, right? He's done a lot of great. So I'm nervous to meet him. He says hi. And, he, and doesn't, no one introduced me to De Niro. He goes, here, this is the scene. Here's how you're going to walk. It's a black tie scene. I'm wearing a black tie. I'm going to talk, you know, to Bernie Madoff and back and forth. So I am freaking out. I had, in that scene, I had, I counted. I had 50 words, right? I'm a piker actor, so I count my words. And I knew I can easily um, make a mistake and so forth and, you know, miss something. So we do the take. Barry comes out. He goes, Mark, can you speak up? Because I was nervous. I didn't project. The second take we do, he comes out. He goes, that was excellent. I thought he was talking to De Niro, but he was talking to me. Third take comes out. He goes, that was perfect. I couldn't believe this, right? So that gave me the confidence. Maybe he was just saying that and didn't mean it, but I found out later he was he really meant it. Um. Anyway, Bob, so then after five takes, you know, they do a lot of different angle shots. And then master shot, then there's a camera on De Niro, then there's a camera on me. So that's why they don't do, you don't do rehearsal because the master shot, this, you know, you have so many takes, you're going to get it, right? So now, after five takes or so, they're flipping the camera onto me. This was originally on Bob. So now me and Bob are on the sidelines and I, I introduce myself. Like we haven't met yet. So I just said, you know, Bob, it's an honor to be in a movie with you. It's one of my first films. And he looks at me and he goes, with that face, he goes, you know, you're good. He goes, you can improv with me. I'm like, really? He goes, yeah, ad lib, improv. I couldn't believe he said this to me. Like, like I wish I would tape that. So anyway, we go back, we do the take. He improvs a little. I improv a little, not really a lot, right? But, and, it went, and then after each time, I go, Bob, is that good? He goes, yeah, that's good. And we did it a, a lot. So now they needed me the next day for another scene. So they put me up in a hotel. We filmed this up in Westchester somewhere. And um, 8 o'clock at night, my phone rings. And the guy goes, Mark, it's Sam. I go, Sam who? He goes, Sam Levinson, Barry's son. Because I'm one of the writers on the film. By the way, Sam Levinson, you know, did Utopia. He just he did he did the movie that uh, the Idol, which didn't do well. I did the Idol, just came out. Utopia. But anyway, he goes. I'm sitting here with Bob and Barry, and we would love to pick your brain on some Wall some hedge fund terms for the movie. So for 15 minutes, I'm going back and forth with Barry and Bob. But what I also decided the first day on set. I, I, when I was done with my scenes with De Niro, they told me you can do whatever you want. Just come back later in the day for one other shot we need. 
I go, I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to watch Robert De Niro and Michelle Pfeiffer act all day long. Cause you know, I don't, I only get a gig every other year. So I, this is like, you know, this is my golf, but instead of doing it, you know, most people do it 10, 20 times a year. I'm only golfing every, you know, once every two years, if you think about it. So I, um, I decided I'm watching ad lib. I decided I'm going to ad lib the next day and surprise him and try to throw him off. And I told Barry Levinson this at the end of that first day. I go, I go, Barry, I wasn't going to tell you this, but I, I've decided this Wall Street guy who I'm playing would not walk away. My next scene, I wasn't supposed to say anything. He's supposed to say he's busy. I'm on the phone. I'm supposed to not listen I'm, and walk away. I'm supposed to listen. I said, this Wall Street guy would not walk away, which he wouldn't, in my opinion. Plus, I wanted more lines with De Niro. I tell Barry what I want to say. He goes, I love it. You can do it. And he goes, we'll mic you up tomorrow. Thank God I told him because I was such a rookie. I, if, I, if I didn't have any lines, they weren't going to mic me up. So they mic me up. The next day on set, there's 150 background because it's a black tie Palm Beach scene in the film. And De Niro comes in and he walks by me. He goes, Mark, thanks for last night. I didn't know. I didn't think he thought, knew it was me on the phone. And I'm ready to get, now I'm not nervous because I got my bugs out the first day. And I, I just nailed it. I nailed it. That's amazing. I have to say, I'm in awe. Okay, I need to know, what is it about acting? Like, well, you didn't, didn't ever want an act ever. And then you get a little taste and then you get another taste and you love it. You clearly love it. So Mark, what is acting for you? Acting is, it really is my golf or tennis, whatever is, I don't have any hobbies. I, my, my hobby, you know, I have my family, my kids, I have my philanthropy. I don't know if that's a hobby, but that's my passion. And acting, you know, I'm, I never, you know, so I don't have golf. I don't have tennis. So acting to me gets my mind out of work. Cause I mean, I do, you do this job, you know, 24 seven managing money. You really do. Clients can call me anytime they want. They all have my cell phone. Um, my clients are fantastic. They're amazing. They don't bug me a lot, but at all, really. But you know, they. But you have. To, I have to think about the markets and things happen, right? I mean, this year alone, I was up all weekend when all these banks were failing at the beginning of the year. So acting, it takes you more. I have to focus on the acting because I'm. You know, it's not what I do every day. So, and when you're focusing on it, all I'm thinking about is acting, and not my job. Then. When you're on a, I mean, being on a movie set or a television set, oh my God, the action is, it's just endless. It doesn't, it's just flowing and it's moving quick and it's moving. And so there's a lot of energy. Yeah, of course, I like the craft services, the food. <laughs> um, but, and it's, it's always an adrenaline rush and I'm always nervous. I'm always nervous. I did this film. I did this film. I play the economics professor. It's a film called After. And I play an economics professor. We filmed it in Emory University in the economic professor's um, lecture hall. And I didn't think this thing would amount to anything. The movie, by the way, did $110 million in the box office. And now they made four of them, four film afters. It's on Netflix. You can watch it. But 
the, what happened, and this, we filmed this in 2019. What happened was they didn't give me my lines. I wanted my lines like a week before because I, you know, I need time to practice with my acting coach to memorize. Long story short, without going into it, they didn't give me my lines till I woke up 6 a.m. that day. I'm in hair and makeup. I'm reading my lines. And I'm reading them, I'm reading them, I'm reading them. And I also added a line. I added a line. It was the first day of economics class. And I say, welcome to Econ 101. And what I added was, I expect everyone to closely pay attention and benefit from my 25-year career on Wall Street. They let me add that because I truly felt I did not look like an economics professor, right? So I felt like, but what I could look like and what really I am could be an ex-Wall Street guy teaching uh, economics class. Long story short, I added that. I had a bunch of lines. At 10 a.m., we're ready to roll. The script consultant comes up to me. She goes, oh, I heard you added a line. I need to know what that is, you know, for continuity of the script. I tell her, I go, can I? do my scene with you. I haven't, I just got the, I haven't done the scene with anyone. She goes, sure. I do the scene. I couldn't remember a single word. Now I'm freaking out. So I'm walk on set. There's 150 people, you know, hundred, the classroom, you know, the stars of the movie are there. Lights and camera. There had to be a hundred plus people in the room, in the lecture hall. I'm wearing a blazer because that was, you know, I was supposed to wear like a blazer, sports coat and jeans. I am sweating. I am freaking out. And I say to myself, why am I acting? Why am I doing this? Eventually, and by, by the way, I missed so many words and lines, but they let it go, let it go. And it ended up coming out good. And, you know, with editing, it looked pretty good. Actually, they, you know, it came out well. Um, but I, it's a long-winded way to say the, it's an adrenaline rush. I love it. And... You know, I got lucky and then I became friendly with Barry Levinson. Barry and I are are producing a documentary right now. Um, we're trying to bring the right and the left together. You know, the country's so divided and it's really a really cool project. And and Barry just put me in his latest film. I had to audition for it. I didn't think I would have to. Because this would be the third time I did a film with De Niro, but everyone has to audition except, you know, the big stars. I'm not a big star, obviously. And uh, it's called Wise Guys. It's the prequel to Goodfellas. Um, Nick Pileggi, who wrote Goodfellas, wrote this, did the screenplay for this film as he did Goodfellas. Erwin Winkler, who produced Goodfellas, produced this. And Warner Brothers, who released Goodfellas, is re- it's, a, it's, it's a theatrical release global by, uh, by Warner Brothers. And I auditioned for it because I had to as a lawyer for the mob. This is all a true story. You know, Goodfellas took place in the 70s and 80s. This film takes place in, in, the, uh, in the late 1950s. And Robert De Niro plays two mobsters. He plays Frank Costello and, and Vito Genovese. And I, I auditioned for the lawyer defending the mob. And then Barry and Bob looked at it. They, and this film, both De Niro and Barry Levinson have to approve every speaking part. And I auditioned. I didn't hear anything for a week. I was nervous. I reached out to the casting director, which you really shouldn't. And Ellen, again, Ellen said, sit tight. 
sit tight. They liked what you did. A week later, they go. They upgraded me to audition for the assistant district attorney. I had to audition, though, for it. I auditioned for it, and I got it, and that's the role. I mean, I, I just felt like I won the jackpot. And again, I put I put De Niro on the witness stand. It's really, really cool. I am so happy for you. Okay, I have a question about when you, because I have not taken any acting, and I'm thinking many listeners haven't. When you have an acting coach, like what are they helping you with? Like just take this, just take us through a little snippet of a lesson. Okay, first of all, if you do, if you do Strasburg method acting, right? Method acting started in the 1890s. Stanislavski, Russia. I mean, it's a real, and there's books on it. Method acting, you know. My first acting coach, Lola Cohen, wrote a good book about Lee Strasberg, uh, The Method, it's called. Um, but the first thing you do in acting class, at least most acting classes anyway, but I can only speak of uh, method acting. You spend a, a half, the first half an hour doing relaxation exercises. Because if you think about it, if you're stressed out, which we all have stress, right? If you're stressed out, you have tr- stress, tension, how can you be someone else? You can't. So they take you through all these different relaxation exercises. Then it's, it's you, the real, the best actors, the one you really like, the ones that are the best, they move you. They can make you laugh. They can make you cry. And they're not faking it, these actors. What they learn, what we learn is, is it's called emotional memory, sense memory. So if you're really crying on the scene, you're crying because you, you learn how to bring up those emotions. So you learn all these things. You, you really, the great actors really need it. And I think the hardest part of acting, at least for me, is being relaxed and being yourself. It's, I will say this. This film I just did, I've been doing this for 19 years. Again, I don't do it every day. I don't get a gig every year. But I've been practicing and doing it for 19 years. I felt finally this film, this was my 13th, you know, television film. I finally got it. I finally really could be comfortable on a set. And it's about relaxing, you know, and getting it and, and really getting into the part and doing the work. You know, I really did the work. I spent the day with the assistant district attorney of Brooklyn. I went to three court hearings in, in the film. I can't really, I'm not going to say what goes on in the film, but Things went on in the film. I visited those locations in New York City where shootings happened and things of that nature. So, you know, I felt I felt like an ADA. I, I look like an ADA boy. It's it's pretty cool how they can do, you know, hair and makeup and stuff. That's so awesome. So this relaxation, take us to the David Lynch Foundation and your journey with meditation. So in... In 2000, in December of 2011, um, my friend Bill Ackman and myself, um, we both were on the board. I met him on the board of the Boys and Girls Harbor. Um, We hosted an investment conference called the Harbor Investment Conference, once a year on Wall Street. And we would raise anywhere from four to $600,000 a year. It was a really big deal. And it was a big deal because of Bill Ackman. I mean, he's, you know, we sold tickets for $1,500. Everyone want, you know, wanted to see Bill. It had nothing to do with me. But Bill asked me to co-chair it with him from day one because you know, someone had to MC it, right? And it was a five-hour event. So I think he figured maybe because of my acting or what have you that I could, I could MC it. So, but every year we would have 
five to 10 great speakers that would give their best investment idea, stock idea. And we'd had everyone from Jonathan Gray, from Blackstone, Larry Robbins, from, from uh, uh, Glenview. And we had a lot of good names. I'm forgetting so many, but Bill, of course, every year. So, you know, we started running out of names. So one day, year I said to Bill, I go, why don't we get Ray Dalio? You must know him. You both went to Harvard. You're both on committees at Harvard. Um, and um, he goes, I don't know him. So a friend of mine was a producer at CNBC. She knew Ray. She knew me. She goes, why don't you? She, she goes, I'll tell Ray to take your call and maybe he'll he'll speak at your investment conference. So this is Ray Dalio. I mean, the guy, this was 2011. He ran, he runs the world's largest hedge fund. He's worth 20 billion bucks. Time Magazine had him as one of the 100 most influential people in the, on the planet. So before we called him, I read about him. And he has a book out today called Principles. But it wasn't, it was on the internet back there. And I started reading it. And when I, he, he goes, before you get into my book, he goes, let me tell you a little about me. I grew up in a middle-class family on Long Island. I cut lawns, I caddied, and then he goes, and I wasn't good at school. I'm like, whoa, this guy's just like me, right? And and he went to CW Post, I went to Hofstra, then of course he went to Harvard, I didn't. But um, he goes, he, he said, but, and I, oh, and he goes for the last, at that time, for the last 45 years, I've been meditating, I owe all my success to meditation. And right then and there, I said, I'm meditating. I heard about it. I go, if, it's, if this, this guy owes all success to it, I'm doing it. So Bill and I called Ray up. He took our phone call. We asked him, would he speak? And he said, organization sounds fantastic. I can't do it when you want me to do it. So he goes, you know, call me down the road. Maybe I can do it again. I go, I, but I go, Ray, before we hang up, I go, I want to learn how to meditate. Can you, where should I go? And he said, go to the David Lynch Foundation, Bob Roth. So David Lynch Foundation is a non-for-profit, which I'm now on the board of, but where we raise money uh, to raise money to teach transcendental meditation to the at-risk population, whether it be veterans, inner city kids, women, uh, our big focus today is on um, the healthcare workers, the frontline workers, especially um, with uh, COVID and all. We we did a big thing with Good Morning America, Heal the Healers. Bob Roth, our CEO, he's he's amazing, greatest guy in the world. He's also one of my mentors, like Tony Duke. Uh, Bob has been teaching uh, meditation for over fifty years. He's dedicated his life to helping others. He's another real saint. Um, and I got into it. And after meeting Bob the first year, he goes, can you join my board? I said, I'm, I'm really involved with Boys Harbor, Robin Hood. I don't have the time. But once I got into meditation after two to three years, I met with Bob again. And he said, can you join the board now? I said, yeah, I'm ready. I did it. And then about four or five years ago, they asked me to, to run it. And I'm the executive chairman. And we have everyone involved from Katy Perry to Hugh Jackman to Ray Dalio, Rob Lowe, 
Uh, I mean, so many Howard Stern, but you know, I mentioned celebrities, but there's so many other great people that you never heard of that are involved, you know, everyday people that help us out. We have great donors and we, we literally are saving lives. And we just launched Meditate New York with Mayor Adams. We, I, we kicked it off at Lincoln Center. And we're going to, our goal is to teach 10,000 at risk uh, New Yorkers to, t- to, to learn to meditate. And the mayor's with us, the mayor's office with us. And that's going to, and that's also we're doing Meditate America. We just did an event in LA, Meditate LA. So our ultimate goal, because, you know, we have to raise a lot of money, we have a $12 million budget every year. By the way, if anyone's listening and they want to go to the davidlynchfoundation.org, if you want to give 10 bucks, a thousand bucks, anything, I mean, it really, really would help us out. Like I said, we have a $12 million operating budget. We really need it. We really are saving lives. Go to our website and you'll see, well, we have a lot of videos and all the people that we're helping. And you, and and I, I think I've been doing it for 12 years. It's a game changer, a game changer. I uh, have extolled the benefits and I think you've done it better than I have ever on um, how you can really be true to yourself. And we could have you back on a whole nother episode on the impact of that. For now, Mark, you have been um, very generous. I am very grateful I would like you to close and just share with listeners what it was like for you to share your journey with us today. Well, like we spoke earlier, I didn't want to do it. It took a year of coaxing. Um, I hope I didn't come across as bragging or arrogant because I don't want to come across that way. Um, I enjoyed it. You know, it's, I've been, I've definitely been lucky. um, But I also believe in all luck is, is when preparation meets opportunity. And I, you know, I really owe, actually, I totally owe all my success to giving back to philanthropy. A hundred, I, I, by the way, I give back because I grew up a family with no money, very little money, right? I wasn't dirt poor. I know there's plenty of other people out there that have, have come up into a tougher uh, economic environments. That is for sure. But I know the pain of having financial struggles. So I got involved with philanthropy because, you know, let's face it, I, I do well on Wall Street. I think it's a responsibility to give back. And I have given back for 30. I got involved with the Robin Hood Foundation uh, over 30 years ago. It's the number one non-for-profit, by the way, in America. And, and but by me helping out others, I met all these great people. And without giving back, I never would have been an actor. It's crazy because I bid on it for law and order, but then I didn't follow up on it, but then I do it for children for children. And I meet this casting director, Ellen Chenoweth. Without that, I never would have been an actor. Without this, without philanthropy, I would have met Ray Dalio, Bill Ackman. And so if there's any advice I would give anyone, get involved with your local charity and do not do it with the intention of meeting anyone, becoming an actor, making money, no way, no how. By the way, people see right through that. All I'm going to say is a very, very heartfelt thank you for giving us a glimpse of who you are, who and what's shaped you. You've put yourself out there. You've been with many high profile folks, Mark, and you've kept your own grounding. And that may be the very most remarkable thing about your journey. If I can be helpful in any tiny way, my friend, you um, know how to reach me. I'm cheering for you very, very big time. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks a lot. 
Uh, when you have someone who's being so true, it's uh, not hard to feel very, very grateful, which is how I feel at this very moment. Folks, uh, let me close with my thought for the week, which is the true measure of a man is not by how many servants he has, but how many men he serves from D.L. Moody and a favorite of Mark's. My gratitude to everyone who makes this show possible, the 24 by 7 crew at Voice America, the very talented Eric Patton, who's behind the scenes with every episode. Um, And that is a wrap, folks. Thank you for tuning in. Please be part of the solution and kindly share this show. Amplify Mark's voice. Reflect on your own top takeaways and know I'm cheering for you to be who you are and say what needs to be said so that you and those around you have a shared reality. Essential to make the best decisions, execute with speed, and achieve outstanding outcomes at work and in your life. Homelessness is solvable. Communities are proving it. And it begins by understanding that we can't keep doing the same thing and expect a different result. The U.S. spends billions each year responding, but it's clear more resources alone aren't enough to solve this complex problem. Community Solutions is a nonprofit working alongside 105 U.S. communities, proving it is possible to make homelessness rare and brief, starting with veteran and chronic homelessness. These cities and counties are fundamentally changing their approach and have committed to get to zero homelessness using real-time, person-specific data to work and use their resources wisely. What can you do? Visit www.built40.org. See if your community is engaged. Contact your mayor and ask, do you know the number of people experiencing homelessness in real time? Do you know every homeless person by name and need? What are you doing to drive measurable reductions in homelessness? Please challenge the fiction that says homelessness can't be solved. Thanks for listening to Say It Skillfully with host Molly Chang. Join us again for more ways to say it skillfully next Tuesday, 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. Follow Molly on LinkedIn and Twitter. Check out sayitskillfully.com and sign up so you don't miss her latest 90-second video. And please, be part of the solution. Kindly tell others about this program so they say it skillfully too. 